My name is Jasmine Sue, and you're listening to JTT. This is the first in a two-part interview with Diane Simpson. This first interview focuses on Diane's life from when she was born in Joliet, Illinois in 1935 up until her solo show at the Chicago Cultural Center in 2010. The second interview will start where we leave off today. And in that interview, we will talk about how she began working with her current art dealers, Corbett versus Dempsey in Chicago, Herald Street in London, and JTT in New York. We will also discuss how her career received overdue recognition with solo shows at the ICA Boston, at the Nottingham Contemporary, at the Ezra and Cecile Zilka Gallery at Wesleyan University, and the inclusion in the 2019 Whitney Biennial. But before we get into that later part of Diane's career, let's begin with today's interview. Today we focus on Diane's formative years as a student and her early career as a sculpture artist in Chicago. In order to give context to Diane's career in the 70s and 80s, we refer a couple of times to the Chicago Imagists. Many of you might be familiar with the Imagists, which were a group of painters that came out of the School of the Art Institute in Chicago and exhibited in the late 60s and into the early 70s. Their work is figurative, sexual, grotesque, political, and surreal. The artists that we refer to today that are amongst this movement are Jim Nutt, Ray Yoshida, Roger Brown, and Christina Ramberg. This movement has received a large amount of recognition in the past few years, particularly from audiences in New York who have come to retroactively appreciate Chicago's anti-pop sentiments as a counter to the work made in New York and L.A. at the same time. And this is partially why we refer to them so much today. The images have become a prominent cultural landmark of art made in America at that time, and it would be difficult to talk about Diane's career in Chicago without untangling her relationship to them. Diane studied with the same professors that the images studied with. In some cases, the images themselves were her professors. And at one point, she was even represented by Phyllis Kind, who was the dealer that championed the imagist in both Chicago and New York. But Diane is not an imagist. She makes sculpture where the imagist made mostly painting. She uses muted tones where the imagist used vibrant colors. While Diane's work references the figure in form and outline, it doesn't depict the body itself or have the sexual or bodily aspects of the imagist work featured. I hope this interview and its personal account of Diane's early career helps to expand the understanding of art made in Chicago in the 70s and 80s. I also hope this interview gives a look into Diane's career as she navigates working with different dealers, at times having to walk away from relationships when they're no longer supportive, and at other times going for long stretches without working with a dealer at all. As an art dealer myself, I'm sensitive to some of the myths that I think the art world can perpetuate, and one is that an artist needs a dealer in order to be validated as an artist but Diane's practice shows otherwise. Her commitment to her work over the past five decades is unwavering and truly inspiring. I hope you enjoyed this interview and thanks for listening. Hi, Diane. Hi, Jasmine. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome. Today, I'm actually going to invite in Ben Shafee to interview you as well. Ben is also here with us. Hi, Jasmine. Hi, Diane. Hi, Ben. Ben and I worked together with Diane when, when Ben was the director of Corbett versus Dempsey, which is Diane's primary gallery in Chicago, and we worked together for many years. Currently, Ben is the curator at the Ezra and uh, Cecile Azika Gallery at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. And earlier this year, Ben curated a show of Diane's early cardboard sculptures titled Cardboard Plus, 
from 1977 to 1980. And we're going to ask Diane a bit about this early work and how she started her career. So thank you both again for joining. Thank you for having me. All right, Diane. So we're going to start by asking you uh, when and where you were born. Okay. Well, I was born Diane Clafter in Joliet, Illinois, in 1935. You realize this is the first time I've had a chance to state publicly the name I was given when I was born. So thanks for that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So because I, I changed my name when I got married. And, you know, it, in those days, this was like, you know, 1956. Number one, I didn't think of myself as a professional artist. And when I f- did think about, and, and also it wasn't kind of done then, you know, unless you were really out uh, professionally at the time when you got married. And it was just too long a name to write on my slide holder, you know, so. <laughs> I decided just to drop the clafter, but uh, so I'm, I, I appreciate the fact that I can now get that out, you know. So would you have, would you have done it differently if you could do it over again? Pardon? Would you have kept your maiden name if you could do it over again? Yeah, I would. I would. Can you tell us a little bit about Joliet, Illinois, and what it was like growing up there? Well, um, this is a t- Joliet's a town about sixty miles south of Chicago, and it's um, actually it was a very nice way, you know, place to grow up. There was one big high school for the whole town, although there were two Catholic high schools also, but the high school I went to, it was really a melting pot because the population in Joliet was really a mixture ethnically and racially, although the neighborhoods were pr- fairly separated. And I knew the, many of the local business, the families that were running the local businesses in town, and it was easy as a kid to actually take a bus and go downtown to the library, or I was taking music lessons, and so, you know, I would say that, yeah, I'm glad I grew up there. Diane, was there anyone in your family who was an artist, either, you know, professionally or had a hobby of making art on their own? Well, I did have an uncle, my father's brother, um, he went, He studied architecture when he came to this country from Europe, but he never really practiced architecture. But he then went into jewelry designing. And I think, I'm not sure, but I think he worked for Harry Winston for, in New York for a while. When he died, I inherited these amazing drawings of his, of, of jewelry. I mean, this big box came to me because the family figured that I would appreciate it. And I had so many, I framed them, many, many of them, and I distributed them to the rest of the family, but I kept most of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have them hung up in your house right now? Yes, yes. You've probably seen them, Jasmine. <laughs> they're, they're in my hallway, um, in the front hall, yep, and in my bathroom, too. I think I recall seeing them in the downstairs bathroom. Yeah, you remember. Okay. Yeah. Good. <laughs> and when when you were growing up, did you go to museums or with your family or on your own, or did you see much art when you were younger? Not when I was very young. No, I really didn't. Um, 
I mean, we didn't go into Chicago to, to the museums. It was only later when I was in high school, and I did go in, well, at that point, I, I went in to take to Saturday classes at the Art Institute, and but I actually didn't have time on those Saturdays to really go into the museum proper. So no, I didn't really uh, have that experience as a young person. Diane, it sounds like you studied art before you saw a lot of art. Is that true? Right. It, um, you were going to classes already. Well, how did you know that? Actually, the, you know, my I I did enjoy art classes in in even in high school, but I think my first experience where I really got, you know, interested in in art as maybe even as a profession was when I was in high school. I took uh, the train from Joliet into the city into Chicago, and I took Saturday classes. It was called Junior School, and these were life drawing classes with this a really amazing teacher, Mr. Jacobson. And the and the students in that class were exceptional. They like I mean people like Irving Petlin was in the class, and um, there was a. A girl, Leah Sayers, who I actually became really good friends with her, and we saw each other outside of class as well. Like, she would come and visit me in Joliet. And um, her family was, uh, in my mind, it was just so romantic to know her family because her father played in the Chicago Symphony uh, in the orchestra, and her sister was in the New York City Ballet. And they had a place in the uh, Indiana Dunes, and I took the train there with and, and went out to spend some time with them in the summer. And Lee and I would, you know, do a lot of drawing and sketching and outside, and we would exchange our work. And there was just something from that experience. It, it really, I think, was, the, you know, so romantic for, <laughs> to know this family. And, and then to know these students in this class, I think that was when I really started to, to know that I wanted to continue on with art. When did you decide that you wanted to go to art school? And, and then when you decided you wanted to go to art school, how did you choose the School of the Art Institute of Chicago? Well, I, I would have chosen that, the, the School of the Art Institute, but what happened, my father passed away when I was like a sophomore in high school, very suddenly. And my mother was, there she was, you know, a 40-some-year-old, early 40s, um, raising three kids on her own. I think she didn't want me to go to the Art Institute. I think she realized, well, she didn't want me living in the city on my own, and she probably thought, and she was right, that the Art Institute had some pretty weird old kids there. She wanted me to go, she, she, want, she was, it was okay for her that I wanted to study art, but I went to the University of Illinois for my first two years in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. It was okay to transfer, because then um, I had met Ken. Well, that's a whole other story. Uh, do you want me to tell you that, too? Of course. But first, I want to know this um, young woman that you were making art with uh, in high school, did she also go to art school? What was her name again? Leah. Leah Sayers. Did she also go to call it art? She was, she, yeah, yeah. She was in, so after, you know, I didn't go on to directly to the Art Institute, but she did. And so I never really, you know, had a chance to be in school with her later because I, I was, I, when I transferred, she was already actually, let's see, she would have, she just wasn't there. I don't remember exactly, but she wasn't part of my school experience when I went to the Art Institute uh, as, a, you know, to the uh, 
undergrad program. But she was somebody who had a father that was in the symphony and, and their family, yeah. her family understood the significance of going to a school like the Art Institute. So she was able to go freshman year, which is interesting. Yeah, right. Uh, you studied painting in school, is that correct? Well, I studied painting at Illinois, University of Illinois, and also for my undergrad, I studied painting. And it was primarily figure painting. And I mean, at Illinois, I think I had a really good understanding of the body. because we, They emphasized, you know, the skeletal structure. We had a buy a book that was really, you know, like a like a medical book practically showing the, the bone structure. But then I, I transferred and when I went to SAIC for my undergrad, I, I continued painting. Yeah. What kind of art were you making in high school prior to going into college? Oh, wow. I don't even remember. I know that I was always the one who was give, given the job of, of designing programs for, you know, all the concerts and musicals and everything that went on there. That was my job. And I, I did some pretty realistic kinds of uh, drawings and paintings at that time, I believe. Was, was your family interested in your artwork as a student? Um, well, my mother was very encouraging, especially my mother, because she was the one that, you know, enrolled me in those classes in high school at the Art Institute. And uh, then, you know, throughout my life, then she was behind me. I mean, really, I think very proud of me when I started to exhibit. So, Diane, what other artists were you studying alongside in school? Well, um, you know, I really have a foggy memory of, of the... Um, of classmates, both at Illinois and in my undergrad at, at uh, SAIC. My life, I didn't have a very important, this, my social life wasn't based around school either because I was already dating Ken and then got married. And I'm sure there were people that I got to know, but I can't really think of them right now. <laughs> Maybe this is a good time to stop and ask about Ken, because this feels like a very important I know. moment in your yeah. life. <laughs> uh, How did you... Well, when what did do you want to know about him? <laughs> so Ken is Diane's adoring husband, who I know very well, and he has been so supportive of her career. And Diane, I want to know when you first met Ken, um, where in your, in your college years that was. Well, we met between my freshman and sophomore year at... Uh, University of Illinois. We met at a wedding uh, that we both attended in this in that summer between my first and second year, and he was a good friend of the groom, and I was a good friend of the bride. And Ken was an usher, actually, in the wedding, and I remember saying to my friend who was sitting next to me, I've got dibs on him. <laughs> this is a classic <laughs> rom-com, Diane. I love it. <laughs> so, um, so really, uh, enough. You know, I waited till the very last dance of the evening. I mean, I was wanting to meet him, but he didn't ask me to dance until the very last dance, and that was the beginning of of a of a relationship that has gone on now for what six, seventy years, sixty years, over sixty years. <laughs> um, Beautiful. Yeah. Um. So. You guys started a family, I know, in while you were still in undergrad. Is that correct? Yes. When, when did you get When did you guys get married, or how quickly were you? Uh, a well, we got married um, uh, between my as, when I went back 
to the to a school as SAIC. This would have been my third year of school, and we got married during that year, at the end of that year, I believe, in 1956. I continued, you know, with school, but I got pregnant soon after we got married. So I went to school until my seventh month pregnancy. Consequently, they were on the quarter system, and I didn't get to finish that very last quarter in order to get my BFA. Right. So you had done three years, three quarters of school, and and stopped your education at that point. At that point, right. And how long was it before you finished that last quarter? Uh, Like 10 years, because there was a deadline. If you didn't go back and complete it, you would lose all credit. So I sort of had a deadline built in there, and um, we wanted to have more than one child, and I decided since I was already diapering, I might as well go go ahead and get through with the diaper stage and have my other two kids, because I wanted three kids. So I did have these three children, and when the youngest one was six, that was when I decided I had to go back at that point, or my, I would have lost all credit. And when she was six and she started first grade, I was able to go back. And, and it took me like three years to finish that one quarter, because I loved going back. And I would just take like one class at a time and <laughs> let it, I just dragged it out. And were you making art over that 10-year period? Yes. Yes, I was mostly painting at that point. A lot of paintings of Julie, my oldest, when, when I had time, when she was still, you know, an infant, I, I did a lot of paintings of her. Then I went back. And in order to sort of get my feet wet, I enrolled in... Well, this was be- then I decided to go on for my, for my MFA. I went to um, enroll in, in sort of student-at-large classes in order to kind of get acclimated again. And uh, at that point, so I enrolled in um, Ray Yoshida's class and one of Barbara Rossi's classes. That's a good uh, segue because we were sort of wondering, how did you decide to continue on for, for an MFA at, at SAIC and... You know, these days, the MFA is often thought of as um, kind of preparation for teaching. Um, and I'm wondering if you were thinking about teaching at the time that you started the MFA program? Uh, well, as an undergrad, I was thinking of a career in teaching. And actually, I did take some teaching, cl- uh, you know, education classes, and I got my teaching certificate at that time. But during the interval between the undergrad and grad, I had joined a women's co-op gallery, and that made me start thinking about going on to, to get an MFA. I started to kind of thinking my, of myself as really becoming a professional exhibiting artist at that point. And also getting a, uh, an MFA would have allowed me to teach at a college level. We kind of skipped over this earlier, but I, I still have it as a question. Uh-huh. Who were some of your undergraduate teachers who were most impressionable on you or had, had the greatest influence on you? Well, in undergrad, I, had, I did mostly figure painting. It was with Paul Wiegart. He, was, uh, he, he came from Germany, and he had studied at the Bauhaus. And Paul Wiegart was, I think, had a good sense of color himself, and I think that was what sort of translated to me and, and, and kind of, I think he influenced me that way. But 
as far as the style of painting that I was doing, I I had all these Paula Wiegart look-alike paintings. Now, everybody, I think, in the class started painting that way, and we were sort of doing a quasi-semi-abstract uh, expressionist ty- style of painting at that time. And uh, how about some of the professors that um, you had in graduate school? I know that you mentioned Ray Yoshida. Mm-hmm. For people that are from Chicago, every, you know, Ray Yoshida is an iconic artist, but maybe you could explain why he was a significant person to study underneath? Well, I actually, when I went back to graduate school, I, I had uh, two main, my two main advisors were Ray Yoshida and Barbara Rossi, but I also talked to Whitney Halstead and Ted Halkin for, you know, a lesser period of time. So just to explain to our, our listeners, Ray Yoshida and Barbara Rossi are, of course, artists, but Whitney Halstead was an important historian and right. I believe not an artist himself. And also, I, was, I took just about every art history class that Whitney Halstead taught, and that was really, really important to me. When my advisors would leave after meeting with me, I would immediately jot down their thoughts in a notebook. And recently, I, I found the notebook, um, and, and it's incredible because the, the, especially the, the notes about Ray and Barbara's thoughts were so relevant to me actually right now even. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, that they were, they were really important in terms of um, developing my, my uh, interests in, in, in some of the, the um, source materials that, I, that I, are so important to me as well. Well, I want to uh, take a moment and talk a little bit about Whitney Halstead because from my understanding about him, I know that you're talking also about Ray Yoshida and Barbara Rossi, but from what I understood about Winnie Holstead was he was this historian that really integrated self-taught material into the curriculum more than maybe other historians would naturally. And a lot of the artists that came out of Chicago ended up being inspired by just a, a different type of, his, a different part of history than maybe some of the artists that came out of New York. To go to what you're just saying, it doesn't surprise me that you've thought a lot about your source material. It seemed like something that a lot of artists in Chicago thought about very carefully at that time. Would you agree with that? Yes, yes. Um, you know, I think that in, in that sense, I really relate to the images that, because we all had Whitney for our art history classes, and uh, he, both Whitney and Ray Yoshida were so influential in looking at source material that just, not other artwork, but other source material that just speaks to us. And Whitney taught classes, you know, in oceanic art, in African, in um, Japanese. I took every class he had, and I think that all of those things have have been continual source interests for me, you know. And when you entered grad school, Diane, you were still focusing on painting, isn't that right? When I entered grad school, um, no. Actually, there were like five years between undergrad and grad, and I had started making prints, calligraph prints. I actually bought a press and uh, during that time, and, and so when I entered grad school, for my portfolio, well, first of all, I had gone, I, I'd taken these classes with Ray and Barbara before I applied to grad school. And I was doing prints and drawings at that time with them. And those are the things that I 
that I used for my portfolio for entering grad school. And then when I, I decided, because I wanted to continue to working with Barbara and Ray, I, applied, I went into the painting department, but I never did a painting the whole time I was there. Was that your question? <laughs> yeah, that was my question. That was definitely my question. So here's the, here's the, the big question then, uh, because nowadays you're not known for two-dimensional work. How did you get from painting, printmaking, drawing into sculpture? Well, that happened toward the very end of my graduate period. I, I was doing these very dimensional drawings, and, um, in, and I was encouraged to start building these. Um, my last question was uh, the, about the big shift in your work and how, I mean, we've talked about this some, but I, for, for everyone listening, they know you as primarily a sculptor. Um, so wondering if you could tell a little bit the story of how you moved from two-dimensional work. You just described shift from painting to, to printmaking and drawing, but then how did you get from printmaking and drawing into uh, sculpture? Okay, so I was making these very dimensional drawings, um, uh, and they just sort of really wanted to pop off the page, and it was Ted Hawkins who, who suggested, why don't I actually build these drawings and really put them into space? So at first I resisted, and I said, well, why not? What's wrong with illusion? But then finally I decided to try doing what he suggested, and I started out with this um, using a cardboard, a cor a, like a triple-thick cardboard called tri-wall, and from then on, the, the works, at first they were wall pieces that were dimensional, that came away from the wall, and then eventually they were freestanding pieces. So I did these toward the very end of graduate school, and they were the, the work that I had for my graduate uh, show at school, my thesis show. And then I just continued. For everyone who hasn't seen them, I wonder if you could how would you describe them today? Like how, how would you say they look like in terms of uh, content? You know, what, what, what's their visual presence for you? Well, okay, so I was using this triple layered corrugated board. It was cheap and it was lightweight. And that was good because I was working from home and I had to schlep them down to school every couple of weeks. I would make individual sections. Usually one piece would have four sections and they had open uh, slots and the pieces would interlock and be slotted together. And um, cutting the cardboard was, was clean um, and uh, because my studio was at that time was in my dining room. And um, the first sculpture tool I used um, was a jigsaw. And the jigsaw, um, I used a knife edge blade to, to cut the cardboard. And because the jigsaw could angle 45 degrees or any degree, you know, one, one direction or the other. And, and this was important uh, since I wanted these 3D versions of the drawings to replicate exactly the spatial system that I had devised in the drawings. You know, so in the sculpture version, just like in the drawing, there would be two parallel planes going back into space at a, like a 45 degree angle. 
and then there would be two other interlocked sections facing the frontal plane. So it was like the, the idea was that I wanted to duplicate exactly in space uh, the version of the object that I was drawing. And then for the surface treatment, I would rub crayon over the surface and that would bring out like the pattern of the interior cardboard fluting. So just so I know, the very first sculptures you made, were those a part of the cardboard the series that we now know as the cardboard series or were there some that you made as sort of leading into that series? There were some, uh, and um, in other words, I, okay, from making the prints, uh, I was making calligraph prints, and, and calligraph prints are, are made by making a plate that would have a, a backing and then materials glued onto it, and then it would be wiped in taglio like an etching and printed. So from the print, from the, from those, from the, from the printing stage, I started to enlarge my plates so they actually were too large to fit onto the press and they became wall uh, sculptures and they would have some dimensional sections that would actually angle out. Again, they were angling out at this 45 degree angle. So there was this group of work before the, the, the pieces really came into space that, that were, were sort of going toward that direction. Is that what you meant? something in between it was yeah yeah I'm just impressed that basically your very first series more or less I mean the cardboard series was such an early part of your sculpture practice because they're very impressive pieces oh thank you (laughs) (laughs) your show at Wesleyan University earlier this year the cardboard plus 1977 to 1980 was the first time that some of these early sculptures of yours had been shown together since 1980. Um, And I wonder, how was it to revisit these early works? And especially because some of them you hadn't seen installed in such a long period of time. Well, the experience at Wesleyan was amazing for me. First of all, it was so great to work with you, Ben, again. And then the gallery itself, the Zilka Gallery, was is so incredible. It's um, the walls are what are they like twenty feet high? Yeah, twenty four feet. And and the and the uh, materials in the gallery consist of stone walls, these beautiful gray stone walls. And so when I entered the gallery, I was it took my breath away. Really, it was so beautiful. The the way the uh, brown cardboard appeared in relation to these stone walls and uh, the whole space of the gallery. And there's natural light coming from one direction from a, a whole wall of, of windows. So, I mean, I walked in and I couldn't believe it. It was so gorgeous. And then I hadn't seen this work installed, like you say, for all those years. And they looked pretty fresh. I mean, like they had been packed in these cardboard containers that were falling apart and then they had to be repacked in order to be shipped but I had not really unpacked any of them beforehand to see their condition and they all looked pretty new I mean it was that that kind of surprised me too and and made me very happy and they had done the the installers for the show were incredible because they only had these little bits of paper, little scraps of un- barely readable scribbled notes on how to put them together because all the pieces came in flat 
individual sections and they had to assemble them all. So um, the whole experience um, was just so, so, so exciting for me. It was, it was for me too. And I, and I, it was such an honor to work with you again. And <laughs> I agree with the feeling about the works in the space. They had, um, not only was there something interesting just tonally, the fact that there's limestone and concrete in the gallery was a similar value to the, to the cardboard. So there was this kind of similar presence across the space, but also um, there was something interesting happening that I maybe haven't seen so much with your work, and that is a relationship between kind of monumentality and an anti-monument. This, so this, because cardboard is such an ephemeral material, um, but yet these pieces are so large. So there's an interesting con detention there in the work that was maybe emphasized by the gallery space. Mm -hmm. um, I love that idea that, you know, they suggest mon mon monuments, but they're, you know, this ordinary material. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think even to, to take that even further, the way that you cut them, you have these very sharp ang angles that you're sort of confronted with. And I think that seeing those sharp angles in this delicate material, in this cardboard, it, there's even a further push like of this feeling of ephemerality to them. And just being impressed that this sharp angle has sustained itself for over such a long period of time. Uh, <laughs> this amazing. sort of archivist yeah, yeah, yeah. in me, it's the first thing I think about when I look at those is, is how sharp they are. <laughs> well, don't, there are a few little little bends here and there. You just can't look at them that closely. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Ben, I, there's something that happened in that show that I think is very special when a curator and artist come together and they have a personal relationship like you both do. You know, I happen to know that Ben and his family come and visit Diane's family when they do their yearly fall raking and chili feast. And I'm only a little bit jealous of, of the fact that you have joined their family and done that. Um. <laughs> I'll invite you next time. <laughs> make the, I think the drive to Chicago to do the yearly uh, fall rake. But I think when you have that kind of personal relationship, there's some things that you can experiment with. And one of them was you made these very personal wall labels for a lot of the work where you gave a history of, of Diane's career in a way that felt just a bit more personal than sometimes wall labels tend to be. H how did you decide that, Ben? How, how did you make that decision to include some of that material? Good question. You know, there was, um, in the process of installing the exhibition, Ken, I'll bring Ken back into this, both Ken and Diane shared so many recollections about those early works, about devising the works, about, you know, where the cardboard came from, about some of the history of the things that were going on at that time. And I just felt like I was learning so much, you know, and, and witnessing um, all of these recollections. And I remember getting distracted from the installation because I decided I should start taking notes. Um, and so I kept getting out my notebook to write down these these facts and then uh, and then decided that actually maybe that was something I needed to be doing more actively during the installation so I started actually really just typing them up and writing them up and and it seemed you know in the in the context at Wesleyan it's not just the fact that we have this brutalist architecturally specific gallery space but we're also a university gallery so I wanted to also open up the work to an audience that 
would not have maybe ever seen anything else that Diane Simpson had made before. Um, and encountering, assuming that uh, the majority of the audience may, this might be the first encounter with Diane's work and, um, and thinking about entering into an exhibition space of work that's all 40 years old that feels present, but you know, how, do we, how do we make that history uh, accessible to, uh, to an audience for the first time? So it was a way of yeah, making it more personal and also bringing, bringing some of the history elements in. And Ben, I did remember seeing people reading those labels. They actually read them. <laughs> Can you, for those that didn't get a chance to see the show, can you summarize maybe one of the labels or a story that was told? Sorry to put you on the spot, but... No, sure, sure. Well, one of the stories, and you can interject here, Diane, I remember one of the stories was how, how cardboard, how you came across that particular kind of cardboard. And I remember, you know, I have the labels in front of me, and I'm almost a year and a pandemic, and uprisings and everything away from from writing those texts but I remember you telling the story of walking uh, past a neighborhood art center or a kids it was a kid it was a child center it was it was a a, a children's museum exactly and yeah. but it was in like a storefront that was in my name I mean you know right in Wilmette and they had a chair of cute little children-sized chair made out of this cardboard. And I really liked it and walked in and, and, and asked them about the material and they had like stored a bunch of it and they actually gave me or sold me a couple sheets and they told me where I could get it from uh, this Riley and Gear company in Chicago at the time. And so that's what how it started. And then I would go to Riley and Gear and I would drive them nuts because I would make sure that they weren't warped and I'd make them take several out of a pile before I would choose one. <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's, that's how it all started and, um, you know, how I, how I discovered that material. Just, just to give our listeners a taste of how Diane gathers materials, she has a bathroom in her house that is covered with the most beautiful wallpaper. And it's not only on the sides of the walls, it's also on the ceiling of the bathroom. <laughs> and whenever Diane gives a tour of the house, she very proudly shows the wallpaper off <laughs> to her visitors. And the, Diane, how did you acquire this wallpaper? Oh, well, first of all, I'm not a <laughs> wallpaper person generally. I would never think of wallpapering anything, but the bathroom, it seemed like that was the thing to do in that bathroom. And my neighbor had done, was doing a colossal job, you know, uh, of um, doing her whole house in wallpaper. And then when she would, she would get these huge samples and then discard the samples she wasn't going to use. And I garbage picked her samples. And, <laughs> and so I, ha I still have a bunch of them. I use them as, as wrapping paper for gifts. But anyway, this, this one particular wallpaper, I would never, ever have chosen if I had thought, you know, looked through wallpaper samples. But it seemed really perfect for the bathroom because the bathroom is original to this house, which is like the, the 1920s. And um, it, it just had this feeling. Oh, and it has some tile that reminded me of like a Turkish bath. And this wallpaper reminded me of a Turkish bath type wallpaper. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, so that's how it happened. And, and we don't take showers in that room. Just it's got this, you know, bathtub on uh, with seat and the original fixtures, the original sink. And so because of that, I think there hasn't been a lot of steam or from a shower. And so it's held up and it's still in pristine condition. When did you first install it? When we moved into the house. Wow. So yeah, it's in great condition. Okay, so going back to the cardboard series or into your your work at that time, I believe Karen Lennox, who was the director of Phyllis Kine Gallery at the time, saw your cardboard sculptures at Artemisia Gallery. So how did you get a show at, like, did you show at Artemisia right after grad school or during grad school? It was right after grad school. Um, you know, I, w- I joined Artemisia because I had been in another gallery called ARC in between, you know, before I went back to grad school. Uh, but then I dropped out because I didn't feel like I could spend the time contributing to the gallery. It was a co-op, and, and I, so I dropped the, the gallery and when I went back to grad school. And when I was finished grad school and I was making these huge sculptures, Artemisia Gallery, another woman's co-op, had moved to a very large space. And so I didn't go back to ARC Gallery, but I joined Artemisia. And so that's where, I don't know if Karen actually got over to see the work there or, or whether she went right across the street from Phyllis Kine Gallery, uh, there were the, the original MCA a museum was, was right there. And I, at the same time that I was showing at Artemisia, I was in a six-person group show at the MCA, and I had three cardboard pieces there. And so I, I, to this day, I still don't know if, if Karen actually went over to Artemisia or just went across the street. So then Karen introduced the work to Phyllis, and then Phyllis offered you a show in her New York gallery after that. Is that correct? Yeah, right. <laughs> and was that your first commercial gallery show? Yes, it was, Yeah. How did it feel to show with Phyllis Kind, who was, I'm, I'm assuming already at that time, a huge name in um, a huge, a huge gallery to be a part of? Well, I, first of all, I couldn't believe I had met with her when you know um, Karen had suggested I I come in and talk to her about the work, and um, I went in there and took a notebook of black and white glossy photos, and I took two maquettes, two small little single-ply cardboard pieces. And Phyllis actually bought those two pieces right then and there when, in, during that meeting. I think she paid $150 for them. Oh, I was so thrilled. Um, wow. And, and during that meeting, you know, she just immediately offered me this show in New York. So, I, I mean, it was kind of, inc- I couldn't believe it. I kind of floated out of the gallery after that. And um, did you go to see? Had you had you seen a lot of shows at Phyllis Kine? You knew who she was. She was obviously such right, a especially you know when I was when I went back to grad school. I that was the one my gallery go to place. I really liked the work she showed, and you know at that point it was like in the late seven or eighty late seventies, um, and some of the images that really you know whose work really spoke to me was Christina Ramberg and Barbara Rossi was doing painting at that time. You know, it wasn't really so close to the what people think of as imagist art in the sense of the early imagist work. 
it was much more contained. And anyway, those were the people and uh, that I really, really especially loved. Miyoko Ito is also an artist who, who Phyllis showed, whose paintings I really, really loved at the time and went to see. Roger Brown's work and just, you know, I, I liked all of them, really. Well, it's hard to give a, one definition for the Imagist work because, like I said, the, the individual artists differ so much in style. And most people, when they think of Imagist, they probably think of the early work from the late 60s. That work did have certain similarities in that it was pretty raucous in both subject matter and style. But then the artists that, that I responded to mostly were people like Roger Brown and Christina Ramberg and Barbara Rossi, and especially the paintings she was doing in like the 80s. They were just more refined and quiet. But, you know, we, we, I know that, like, I didn't especially go to comics for my inspiration as some of the images did, but we, we also, sh but we shared a certain appreciation for like outsider artists like Joseph Yoakum. And um, we all had Ray Yoshida for a teacher and Whitney Halstead who for his art history classes, he influences, influenced us and to especially appreciate like vernacular source materials. Uh, so yeah, for those that don't know, Joseph Yoakum was this amazing artist who is part Cherokee, and I believe his father was a trail guide for people that were laying railroads out in the west, western part of the United States. And then Joseph Yoakum himself became somebody who was a, um, a bit of a guide for people that ran circuses, I believe. <clears throat> and then he later, in his 70s, started to draw and would draw a lot of the landscapes of the western and southern United States. I think he also was a soldier at some point. Anyway, so he did a lot of different types of landscape work, all from memory. Wow, you know more about him than I ever knew. That's great. But he is very, very influential on a lot of the imagists, and I think on your work too, right, Diane? A little uh, bit. Probably. I mean, I love, 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 love his work. And um, so I think his color too is really, really wonderful. Yeah. I think maybe, maybe one thing is important to draw a little bit of a distinction because it's something that's interesting Diane about how you fit into this history is this gap how this gap between your undergraduate studies and your graduate your MFA studies at the School of the Art Institute is kind of exactly when Chicago imagism took root in in the in the downtown scene or really you know out of the Hyde Park Art Center which was the opposite side of the city from where you lived and also kind of a time when you were focused on other things. You know, for those of you not so familiar with like the art historical movement, the, you know, it started with the kind of original show, Chicago Imagism started with the Harry Who, in which the first show was uh, 1966, I believe, at the Hyde Park Art Center, which was this community-based art center run by an artist, Don Baum, and Hyde Park is a neighbor, neighborhood of Chicago, but it's, but it's on the southern side of the city, about seven miles south of, of downtown, seven miles from the School of the Art Institute, which is where all the artists were from, or was like kind of nexus out of, out of which it was born. But can you talk a little bit about how, Diane, about, I mean, you, you made reference to some of the, the basic 
sources of inspiration for ways of describing imagism, that there's a relationship to comics and a kind of reductive style. There's a kind of perversion and of the figure, or there's a presence of the figure, um, certainly a relationship to surrealism as well, which is maybe something that kind of separated imagism from other pop art movements in, in LA or, or New York. And you, you talked a little bit about artists that you're particularly interested in, which it's interesting you mentioned Roger Brown, Barbara Rossi's paintings from the 80s, and Miyoko Ito, because I think of all of those painters as dealing with architecture space a little bit more. They're painting and rendering objects and geometries. Miyoko Ito, a little bit more color field, but, but still there were a lot about those shapes, uh, geometric shapes, um, and I hadn't thought about those relationships to your work. But could you talk a little bit about your relationship with some of the imagist artists or about this gap time between, um, between your undergraduate and your graduate studies? Yeah. So you're t you mentioned the early uh, Hyde Park, Park Art Center show, that um, the first shows that imagist had. During that time, um, I did not ever see those shows. I was raising a family completely isolated from the art scene. So it was only really later that, as I mentioned, the, the artists that, that really meant more to me and re I related more to their work, that was later when I went back to school and I was going into Phyllis Kind. And so the, there, there seems to be sort of this gap, this real split in the very early images work that you know, that was shown in the Hyde Park Arts Center shows and the later work that this, these artists did. I mean, someone like Jim Nutt, his early work is so, well, I didn't relate to the, that as much as like his later, well, especially his portraits. I mean, I really relate to those. And maybe it's because there's, there's none of that raucous stuff going on. And just uh, uh, he's concentrating on a very refined version of a, of a, portrait of a drawing. He's also angling his, his uh, faces in a sort of skewed way that I think relates to the way I skew work. And I love his uh, sense of pattern, the kinds of patterns he uses on the, these women's clothing in his portraits. And so, I mean, there are things, it's, it's like Jim Nut, there's two Jim Nuts in, in my mind. And, and it's that you know, later work that I think I appreciate more. Yeah, I just, I think it's really interesting. It, it's easy from the outside to look, to look in at Chicago and think of it reduced to one, one movement at that time, just Chicago imagism. What's interesting to me about your connection or lack of connection with that work is that you're actually a little bit older mm -hmm. than most of mm -hmm. those artists. You were in school before they were, and then not around the scene yeah. when they when they were and they, when they were defining the scene. And when you talk about then reconnecting in with Phyllis Kine Gallery in 1980 or 79, at that point, many of those artists had had you know great careers and works in collect museum collections and so they were already they'd kind of like skipped ahead of not ahead but like you know it had moved, moved further in their career than 
than you had at that point. So there was this sort of like interesting way or sort of like out of alignment, um, even though you were in the same space and traversing some of the same pedagogical spaces, you know, they're in the same university, same gallery spaces and cultural spaces, but, but there's this, a slight separation, um, which I think is, you know, that's notable. And I think mm -hmm. in some ways kind of defines some of your, uh, the things that you're grappling with mm -hmm. in different ways. Yeah. Well, I think it's also interesting that the Imagist movement was, of course, very much based in painting. And Diane became very invested in sculpture. And that difference also feels su super significant. I know, Diane, that you're friends with Richard Rizak. Were there other sculptors in Chicago that you resonated with or that you shared work with or that you grew with? Hmm. Not really. I mean, the thing, the, the artists that, well, when I was in grad school, we had visiting artists and there were some women that came like, these artists, these women artists of the 70s excited me. Oh, Jackie Windsor's work, and just uh, trying to think of their names now. I, they, those were the artists, you know, that Ava Hess's work, Ray Morton, Mona Hatoum. Those are the artists that, that I think interested me primarily because they were working with materials that were non-art materials. And I think Ray Morton actually came to school and was a visiting artist that was the tragic moment where she she got she was hit by a car and actually was killed that at that point but anyway it was so though so in terms of sculpture it was really more the women artists like that were doing work in the 70s that that spoke to me i know this uh story that you're going to have to remind me Diane where you found out that you and Christina Ramberg had both been using the same book as a source for your work. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Uh, sure. Anyway, I got to know Christina around the time I joined the, the, the Kind Gallery, but we were never really close friends. But when, when I went, Ken and I were planning a trip to Japan, she came over and told us about her, her recent trip to Japan and gave us information on places to go to that I would never have known about places that weren't on the usual tourist map. In terms of Christina's paintings and drawings and how they, they resonate with me so strongly, I think in her paintings, it's her forms that are so strong and how she chooses a, a particular section of the body and uh, how she would place it on, her, on the canvas. And also, I think it's her colors and these muted colors. And, and, of, and her finish is just so exquisite, uh, so complete to the way she, she paints. So I think it was, it's, it's just everything about her paintings like, that I love. And, and I love her drawings, too. What was your question? Was it about her or <laughs> I don't remember? Well, there, you know, Christina Rehmberg is one of my favorite artists of all time. I mean, she's just amazing. Um, I think very loved by a lot of artists. And I, I remember throughout me knowing you, I've always been so fascinated with how much you knew her. And I've been just a bit of a fangirl in general of her work. And of course, a huge fan of yours. And I feel like you've told me over time that you knew each other, you were friends, but you weren't super close. But there were these moments where you both were looking at the same source material. Oh, and about looking at the same material, yeah. So I just have this romantic, uh, you know, idea of how you guys both were on this so, parallel trajectory yeah. in your careers. 
you know, I'm, I'm so sorry that I didn't really have a chance to talk to her about so many of the things we were both looking at at the same time. For instance, I think what you're talking about, I had a catalog for a show of Christina's drawings that Judith Kirshner curated a show in around 2000. And so in this catalog, they, the catalog was all of her drawing, of Christina's drawings, but also it, it included notes on her thoughts and her lists of subjects that interested her and things like that. And then on one page, she had written the title of a book, several page numbers from that that book. And she was probably, I can picture her researching this book at the Ryerson Library at the Art Institute. And the book was from a 10-volume set of color prints. They were published originally around the 1880s in Germany. And they, they, they were individual sheets of uh, absolutely gorgeous illustrations of clothing and furniture and uh, household items and architectural elements. Each volume would have a particular, would concentrate on a particular period, they were ranging from like the 12th to through the 18th century. And so as I was looking at these notes, and looked, realized that this particular book, these books, this whole 10-volume set, I actually own. I found it in a used bookstore many years ago, and those images really have, have, have nourished me for years now, the visual sources in, in those books. And actually, even the page numbers that she listed, they happened in, to coincide with some of my favorite images. So it, it just blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. Also on that page, there was a drawing of a Japanese headdress, and she, underneath she had written Kanmori. Well, this is a headdress. I never really knew the name of it, but the, the form of the headdress is one of my absolute favorite, favorite forms. And so here, you know, here she was looking at the same kind of forms. So it was, um, we really were on the same wavelengths. Yeah, it definitely seems like that. Even though I don't, you know, looking at your work is obviously very different and how you took that source and how it inspired you is so different. But um, yeah, I'm very interested in, in how you guys had such parallel, you know, thought processes. Diane, we just kind of diverged after talking about your introduction to Phyllis and your first show in a commercial gallery. And I know you had a a second show with Phyllis in her Chicago space in 1983, I believe, which was the Samurai Sculptures. Could you talk a little bit about your history after that show? Sort of bring us from 1983 up to more present day in the sense of... Um, you know, what, what galleries did you work with? That, that's a history, your history with galleries in that period is something that's a little hazy for me, but personally, but you know, how did you stop working with Phyllis uh, is interesting. And then, and then who did you work with in between Phyllis and, and Corbett versus Dempsey in 2010-ish? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, well, I didn't tell you about my show at Phyllis's in her gallery, did I? No, please tell us, we wanna hear. Oh, uh, well, okay, so this was exciting. I was, I showed my, a whole group of samurai sculptures. This was the first work I had done 
in, in wood, in um, Medite fiberboard. So I've, you know, and having a show in Chicago then was exciting uh, since all my friends were there. And, but during the opening, I noticed Phyllis wasn't anywhere around and I got a call from her. From, she was calling for me from New York to tell me that she could not be at the opening. And I almost died. I mean, I was so disappointed. I mean, this, I never ever went to one of her shows and I went to a lot of them and she was always at the opening, you know? So that really, really disappointed me. And I kind of, from that, was getting some hints that I wasn't one of her, you know, on top of her, her list of, of favorite artists. And so what happened after that show, a couple years went by, and I had been making a lot of work and asked her to, you know, if any other show was going to happen. And she suggested, oh, I know I had a show at State of Illinois building, the Thompson Center, and I had several pieces in, in this show. And I dragged Phyllis over there to see it, picked her up, took her there. And she at the time said, okay, maybe I'll give you a two-person show. And she mentioned who she was going to give me possibly the show with. And nothing happened. And I still, to this day, don't know why, because maybe the person that she had in mind didn't want to show with me, or she just gave up the idea. But whatever, nothing was happening. And then I was feeling, I guess, pretty confident of my, about myself at the time. And so I'd left the gallery. From then on, I joined a number of galleries. Um, I sort of jinxed all of them because they all closed right after my show. I shouldn't tell you this, Jasmine. I know, I know, because the first time I did a studio visit with Diane and asked her to, basically Diane wrote me this email after I started the gallery, we'll get into this later, but I flew to Chicago immediately to ask you to do a show, and we had a studio visit, and you said... At the end of it, you said, just so you know, whenever <laughs> I, I do a show with somebody, the gallery closes. Are you ready? Are you ready to close, basically? And I was like, oh, yes. let's do it. <laughs> that's a way to go down. Do a Diane Simpson show and close. I think that's totally fine. <laughs> I'm surprised it didn't scare you off. I mean, really. I was only a couple of months in. It, what was I, I didn't have anything to lose, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway... I, did, I joined like three different galleries. One of them was a really good gallery, Dart Gallery. But um, it, like I said, it closed after my show and it was not anything to do with me. It was having to do with, you know, the, the gallerist at the time was not doing well physically, I think. And, but I didn't get, I, I never was on the in on any of these stories. And so it kind of shocked me. But then at that point, I was preparing for retrospective at the Chicago Cultural Center, a 30-year retrospective. And so I had really done a lot of work at these different three galleries and nothing was selling. And so, but I had all the work, you know, and so it was at that point then in 2010 when I had, you know, the show was installed. And at that point, I decided to approach John Corbett and Jim Dempsey at Corbett and Dempsey Gallery. And I took them actually gave them a tour before the show started, before my retrospective started. And they also came and visited my studio at that point, and they invited me to join the gallery. So there was a happy ending to that kind of disappointing period. And then I joined JTT, and that's, I have some questions about that, actually. <laughs> well, um, well we, have to, we have to set some records straight, I believe, because <laughs> I 
spoke incorrectly about a year ago on Talk Art podcast with Russell Tovey and Robert Diamond. And on this podcast, they ask me how I came to know your work. And accurately, I said that in 2010 or so, maybe nine, I was the director of Kimmerich Gallery in Tribeca. And Matthew Higgs was curating a show there. And he shared, he just very casually dropped your catalog on my desk. And I like immediately became obsessed with your work and tried, you know, tried to get Dennis to show it. And so that part was true. That's how I came to know your work. And then once I stopped working with Dennis and I opened up JTT, Diane sent me a very flirty email telling me that she wanted me to be reminded of her work. And I couldn't believe somebody that was as incredible as you ever would want to show at JTT. And that was when I flew to Chicago and we did a studio visit and I asked you to work with me. But I inaccurately explained how Matthew Higgs came to know your work. I said that B. Wirtz was curating a show at White Columns and that B. Wirtz came across your work in the White Columns registry. This is what I said on the podcast. And Diane Simpson's listening to this podcast from her home in Wilmette and is very upset with me. <laughs> no, I wasn't. <laughs> but I wanted For to... inaccurately portraying it. So, Diane, time to set the record straight. Okay, great. Um, you were almost right. You were part right. But I never was part of the registry at White Columns. Uh, what happened is that, the way I understand it, that B. Wirtz sort of accidentally came across an image of one of my sculptures as he was researching Richard Rezac's work. Because Richard, I had asked Richard to write something about my work for a brochure for a show I was having. And evidently, the one of my sculptures popped up when he when B. Wirtz was looking at his website. And so that particular, then he invited me into the show and that using that particular piece. It was just a big pure coincidence in how he happened to come upon it. Yeah. After after I that show, I would usually stop in to see to, to White Columns, you know, to chat. So Matthew suggested it one oh and I brought him a catalog, a catalog that had been made for this cultural center show, the retrospective show. And so Matthew suggested that I send catalog to Kimmerich and to Andrew Krepp's gallery. I, I actually had a really nice meeting with Andrew Kreps. He, they were really nice to me, spent a long time talking, and, but then nothing ever developed. And, and Jasmine, I'm trying to remember, it was a while before we connected, I think, right? I think maybe two, I think maybe a year, maybe two years, because yeah, and I took somehow, a year off. Yeah. I remember you were. In Kimmeridge. Yeah. You were in a. In, a, in an art fair, and I, I think I approached you there. No, I think you sent it. Did you really come to me? I think you sent me an email. Did I? Well, I was, I was pretty Yeah, gutsy, I think you sent me I? an email. Because I remember being very surprised and immediately buying a ticket to Chicago. Huh. Okay. We'll have to, we'll have to search our emails and find that out. But maybe you did approach me at the Chicago at, at Expo. Is that possible? Could be. Yeah. I seem to picture it in my head. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> wow, Diane. Yeah, I was love it. I just, You're into I it. had nerve in those <laughs> days. I mean, really. <laughs> it worked out. Diana, now that you have galleries in both New York and Chicago, and and actually at this point London as well, and your the beginning of your career was was split between these two cities through Phyllis Kind. 
I wonder, do you experience a difference as a, as an artist, um, between having work or showing work in both of those cities? What's, what's your experience of the relationship between New York and Chicago, if you have one? Well, uh, you know, back in the day before there was internet and art fairs, I think there was a really big difference in showing in Chicago or New York. And, uh, you know, Chicago had some some decent uh, publications like the New Art Examiner, and they had some good reviewers, but it, the, the reviews were probably never read by anybody except people that got the Chicago papers. So I, I think the exposure, you know, was limited, but I think it's changed now because of the internet and, and the art fairs. And, but, you know, there's really nothing quite like a good review by uh, Roberta Smith in the New York Times, right? I think there, there's just much more exposure still in New York, having a show in New York. But I don't think that Chicago artists are thought of so much as, you know, local Chicago artists anymore. Many of them are, are known, you know, throughout the world. And it's just a, a more uh, equal playing field. So. Yeah, that, make, that totally makes sense. I had a question for you that's maybe a little bit more getting back into your studio practice. And that is, you know, from, from knowing you and, and working with you over the years, I know that you, you don't use, you don't have any assistants who help make your work and you, though it can take you a long time, you figure out how to do it and construct everything on your own. Is there a reason why you feel that's important to you? I know these days so many artists have things fabricated, you know, drop some plans or work with a fabricator, or have things made for them or portions of things. And um, I think it's very particular to, to you and your process that you that you don't. And I, I wondered if you could, is there a reason why that's important? And could you talk a little bit more about that that aspect of your practice? Well, I think it's it's because my process is such a is sort of a trial and error kind of process, learning sort of on the job with each piece. And so I don't think, and also I don't think I'm organized enough to know when I would really, could really use an assistant. There are certain periods where I would love, where, where I'm doing some very repetitive, boring work, and I would love to have somebody help me, but I can't always know when that would be. I guess I'm just not that good a planner, so I couldn't predict in advance. And, uh, you know, there, I have... At one point, there was an artist from Columbia College in Chicago who, this was way back, she was given honor to, it was sort of a first, a senior was chosen uh, that could, the honor was to work with another artist, and they would set it all up, and I was chosen to work with this particular student. And she came, and actually all we did was talk, and we never really, I never really did any work with her while she was there. So, it, you know, it's, I think I'd be kind of self-conscious with somebody near me as I'm trying to, in a very clumsy way, trying to figure something out. I mean, here I am. I'm supposed to be know what I'm doing, but I don't. And, I, you know, I just like working on my own and probably has some drawbacks. But, And I couldn't possibly think of fabricating something because I, I like the feel in my work of the hand being there and using materials that, are associated with the hand, like the, like uh, putting crayon over on, on a wood piece uh, or drawing on the on the piece, and so yeah, I think it's just it's just not my my style of working. 
to fabricate something at all. It would not work. So what are you working on right now, Diane? Oh, oh, well, there was a piece that was the show that I was just in, and a piece was damaged there, and and I, the collector, preferred to have the piece remade rather than, you know, collect insurance on it, which I'm glad because it happened to be one of my favorite pieces. I said, fine, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it over. And so for the last, like, six weeks, I've been working on that. And actually, today's kind of a celebration because I'm, I'm ready to actually put it together because it's, all the pieces are our components and um, it's exciting yeah so that's what I've been working on it's not I mean it's been nerve-wracking because I'm working with this very high gloss paint that is impossible to put on without mistakes and I don't know how I did it so perfectly the first time but this time it took me forever I was getting dust in the paint and I was kept buying new cans of paint and I won't go into it but anyway it finally looks good as soon as we get through talking, I'm going to run out to the, my studio in the garage um, and, and put it, actually put it together for the first time in a long time. So that's what I'm working on. And I also have been working on new pieces, and they're a combination of like wall pieces and freestanding. And they're much more architectural in nature and in, 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 in terms of my sources than having to do with clothing so much as I had been doing concentrating on for so long. These are things that I always work from photographs. My inspiration comes from like usually photographs that I've taken. These are photographs that I've taken in various times and trips or whatever of primarily window treatments on buildings have interested me, the type of window. And anyway, so that's, so the work is really removed and has moved away from, from clothing source material so much. Right, and I, I think you're also working on new sculptures for a show that you might be having at JTT in the fall of 2021. Yeah. That was a bit of a baiting question. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so I have motivation. <laughs> you're supposed to say I'm working on my next solo show at JTT Art Gallery. Uh, I have motivation. <laughs> yeah. So Diane, do you ever lose sleep thinking about art? Oh my god, all the time. I do. I really do. I, I, you know, on how I'm going to make this piece work, how it's going to be hold together or, I mean, I do. I really, sometimes I lose sleep thinking about it or I have dreams about it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Is that unusual? Not at all. For an artist to (laughs) get so hung up. (laughs) No, I don't Uh, think so. Yeah. Diane, do you have any advice for any uh, artists that are starting their career out? Oh, wow. That's, that's really a difficult one. It really depends so much on each person's situation, especially how financially secure they are, because I know how difficult it is to, to have an pra- art practice and support oneself on their art when they're just starting out. I think, I guess... I would just say to have really strong convictions in the art that they're making and listen to themselves and just to know what's important to them in terms of what they want to express, not what is going on around them that might be in vogue, but just what's really important to them and uh, just, you know, marry a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) 
Good advice. That's very good advice. Ben, do you have any last questions for Diane? No, I don't at all. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And though I knew a lot about your work and history, Diane, I feel like I learned a lot hearing from you today. So thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Diane. Thank you, David. <laughs> David with his mask on. He says, well, welcome. <laughs> And thank you, Ken, for all of your support. For He's sitting on, with his mask on on the other side of the room. <laughs> oh. And thank you so much, Diane. Oh, thank you, Jasmine and Ben. Good friends, good friends and wonderful, wonderful people. Oh, I'm so glad to know you. We're glad to know you, too. Likewise. <laughs> all right, guys, I think it's a wrap. Sweet. How do we, how do we feel about it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm also dying to know what Barbara Rossi and uh, Rayushita wrote you. <laughs> uh, oh, oh, okay, someday I'll show you. Um, just the listeners want to know what classic, classic content was there. <laughs>